The views and discussion expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of the hosts of the program, WMKV, Maple Knoll Communities, its staff or management. The information and advice presented are educational in nature and not intended to be taken as legal, accounting, or other professional advice. Always consult with your own legal, accounting, or other professional before making any investment. Welcome to Real Life Real Estate Investing, a show to help you gain financial freedom by investing in real estate. Brought to you by the Real Estate Investors Association of Cincinnati and the Ohio Real Estate Investors Association. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing on 89.3 FM WMKV. And now your host, Vena Jones-Cox. Good afternoon. I am Vena Jones-Cox, and this is Real Life Real Estate Investing, your nation's public radio source for the tips, techniques, and strategies you need to build your own financial independence through real estate investing. And today is question and answer week here on Real Life Real Estate, which means there's no topic except what you want to talk about, whether your questions are about wholesaling, retailing, landlording, lease options, contracts for deed, Exit strategies, entrance strategies, finance strategies, how to get started, how to get out, how to make the money, whatever. You just have to give us a call here in the greater Cincinnati area at 772-9658 or toll free from anywhere in the United States at 877-772-9658. Or if you prefer to communicate via email, you can do so by going to askvina.com and filling out our Ask a Question form. Make sure that when you do that, you tell us where you are calling, writing, emailing from, because sometimes the answer depends on where you live. Again, any questions today on question and answer week, uh, askbina.com or 877-772-9658. If you haven't become a fan of Real Life Real Estate on Facebook, you might want to take a minute and do that right now. It's realliferealestateradio.com or just go to Facebook and put in Real Life Real Estate Investment you will become one of over 5,400 people who like Real Life Real Estate on Facebook, and you'll get to learn about all kinds of cool things like upcoming programs and uh, things that are going on around the state and around the country in real estate education. great example of that is that Cincinnati RIA and the Ohio Real Estate Investors Association are sponsoring a one-day workshop with the guru of gurus, Ron LeGrand, 27 years in the real estate business, over 2,000 deals under his belt, and he's doing a special all-day workshop on February 9th here in Cincinnati for the nonprofit OREA and Real and uh, Real Estate Investors Association of Greater Cincinnati. You can find a link on the Real Life Real Estate Investment Facebook page uh, to get, learn more about that, everybody is welcome, whether or not you are a member of one of those two organizations. It's here in Cincinnati on February 9th. You might want to go check that out, and don't forget to fan us on Real Life Real Estate. 
It's question and answer week here on Real Life Real Estate. We're going to go to some emails, uh, email questions that have come in. Uh, This one from Van in North Carolina. He says, thanks for all the great shows over the years. After watching an infomercial, my niece and her husband are considering real estate investing. Which of your past shows posted on the internet would be helpful to them in getting started on flipping? I currently invest in properties for long-term rentals. I know you can't recommend any home study programs, uh, but we would appreciate any information that you have. Uh, for those of you who don't know what Van is talking about, about real-life real estate shows posted on the internet, if you go to iTunes, uh, the station here is good enough to post each and every show uh, from real-life real estate on our iTunes account. Uh, you're going to be looking for the one that has upwards of 100 shows posted there. There's uh, actually two real-life real estate accounts, one of which has, I don't know, a couple of dozen And the other one has all of the ones for the last few years. Um, It's a free podcast. Don't even have to pay anything to go back and listen. Uh, Van, there's uh, you'll notice that uh, just looking at the titles there, we've we've done a number of shows on various kinds of flipping strategies. Uh, The most recent was probably Ron Legrand uh, back in July of this year. Uh, You'll see uh, shows up there from Larry Goins and Robin Thompson, who of course talks about retailing, Jerry Fink talking about how to deal with contractors. Uh, The podcasts will get them started in understanding what's available to them and how to uh, how to get started in those things. The limitation, of course, of a one hour program once a week is that it is not a substitute for a complete home study course that would probably have things like, oh, I don't know, contracts, forms, um, uh, you know, 20 20 hours worth of audio all on the same topic, all of that sort of thing. So thank you very much for your question, Van, and good luck to your relatives in getting started in real estate and doing it the right way. A question here from Tom with no location on it, but... uh, This would have been in response to last week, or I guess the week before last's Real Life Real Estate e-letter, which was about how to uh, not do showings on your rental properties. Uh, Missy McCall Hammonds, who was my guest a couple of weeks ago, wrote us up an article about what she calls her lockbox showing system, where people um, are simply pre-screened, then given the lockbox number and allowed to let themselves into a rental under the theory that after years of experience, she has found that either people love the unit or it doesn't work for them. And her being there does not make any difference in whether or not uh, the folks actually end up renting. So his question is, uh, does the front door key fit other locks in the house? So in other words, when the people go and open the lockbox, what does that key go to? It goes to the front door and, and that's it. They're wouldn't be a, a backdoor key or anything. Uh, do you change out the front door lock when rented? Uh, that is generally a very good idea, uh, Tom, because obviously it's possible that someone could have um, copied that key. However, uh, the way most landlords handle that situation is rather than go get a new front door lock, if they have multiple properties, they simply move the door locks around, or there are locks, of course, that can be easily rekeyed without removing them. Uh, who 
checks the house after the customer leaves to make sure the lockbox is closed? The answer is no one, because uh, if the lockbox is not closed or the key is removed, the very next person who goes to see it notifies you of that. And that uh, that happens every once in a while, that the folks will accidentally stick the key in their pocket and leave with it, or they will... um, you know, leave the lockbox front open, in which case it's, you know, not that big a deal. The next people just close it up after them. So appreciate your question, Tom. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing. It's question and answer week on Real Life Real Estate. And we are taking your questions at 877-772-9658 or via email, just go to askvina.com. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Vina Jones-Cox. It is question and answer week here on Real Life Real Estate. And we are live today, so you can call in with your questions at 877-772-9658, or you can email them. What you need to do is go to askvina.com. You'll see a little thing there that says, ask Vina a question. If you fill in that form, it will come to me via email. A question just arrived via that method from Brent in Jonesboro, Arkansas. He says, uh, sorry, this email is so lengthy, but I do know that things tend to be a little slow on the first part of question and answer day. I found the podcast of the show on iTunes a few weeks ago, and I'm listening to the show live for the first time via the WMKV app on my phone. Um, by next week, I will listen, listen to of all of the past shows <laughs> on iTunes. Wow, you are going to get sick of the sound of my voice, Brent, because there are a lot of shows on there. There's like over 100 hours of shows on the podcast. It says, I have around $30,000 in cash available to put toward a property and have excellent credit. So qualifying for a traditional bank mortgage shouldn't be a problem. Currently, the strategy I'm leaning toward is buying and holding rentals for the long-term wealth accumulation. I can handle most of the repairs myself and have enough flexibility in my real job to support this. While I have tons of experience with home repair and maintenance, I am 34 years old and not a homeowner myself, so I'm thinking about buying a home in need of a minor to moderate amount of TLC and living in it while I do the repairs, then repeating the process with another house. Things like roofing and cabinets I would probably contract out just to speed up the process, but bathroom remodels, electrical, plumbing, etc. are all things I can handle. Am I crazy for considering this? One concern I have is that after I finish the first home, I may not have enough money available for down payment or repairs on a second home. Any advice or alternative suggestions are greatly appreciated. I know real estate interest rates and property values will not stay low for long, and I don't want to be kicking myself for not taking advantage of this opportunity. Uh, first of all, Brent, thank you for saying that last thing, because I've had a half a dozen discussions in the last week with people who are, as you are, qualified to get traditional loans, and yet uh, are just dragging their feet about going out and buying some properties with those. I was quoted a rate the other day from a local mortgage broker on a Fannie Mae loan, so a, a, a conventional loan, for investors with high credit scores and 25% down of 3.625% fixed for 30 years. That, 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 that That's incredible. Uh, and, and anyone who thinks those rates are not going to go up um, is probably dreaming. 
So yes. Now, are you crazy for considering living in a rehab? You did not mention whether or not you were married and wanted to remain married because that is going to be uh, one consideration. Uh, A lot of uh, new investors and particularly young new investors with skills like yourself uh, do exactly what you're saying. They, They buy a house to live in, they move into it, they do the work while they live there. And then they move out and go do it again with another property, leaving the one behind them as a rental. Now, one thing that you might consider is uh, an FHA loan on that property because it would require a lower down payment. And FHA loans have even lower interest rates than conventional loans. The one hitch in that process is that uh, FHA does not like to insure loans on properties that need more than mild TLC. Uh, If you get into one that needs the moderate to high level of repairs, you might be looking at an FHA 203k loan, which is a construction loan. And in that case, you will probably not be allowed to do most of those repairs yourself. You will have to get a licensed contractor. But the rates are good, the down payments are low, and that will uh, save you some money. Now, you can no longer have more than one FHA loan in your name. It used to be the case that you could, you could move into a house, uh, get an FHA loan, move out, get another FHA loan on the next house and so on. That is not possible anymore. So one alternative here to recoup your money, because you're concerned about having the money to do the next property, is buy it, fix it, refinance it to pull out your down payment and repair money. And then since you have the down payment again, you can go get another conventional loan and uh, you can get up to four of those at 20% down as an investor, although you will be a homeowner in each one of these. So really it'll be five to 10% down for you. Uh, The question as to whether or not you are crazy. um, Again, let me say that this works really, really well for some people and it works not so well for other people. And the difference tends to be how well they can tolerate living in a construction zone. Uh, I did this on my first house and come to think of it on my second house as well. And uh, it it was, um, you know, it was an adventure because when you're remodeling that bathroom and you have to take a shower in the basement for a few weeks, uh, that can be stressful and draining or it can just be, uh, hey, it's only a couple of weeks. It depends on your own personality. Um, it took me, oh, eight years to completely finish the first one, and we are in year 13 of the second one, and it is still not anywhere near the way I want it. But uh, for, for folks who, you know, actually have the time to work on their own houses, I think that is a bit different. Uh, Brent's last question. I haven't been able to find any information on a local RIA group in my area. Do you have any suggestions? Well, Brent, I went over to nationalria.com. National RIA is an umbrella organization. Uh, to which a lot of the organizations in the United States belong. Uh, There is an organization called the Northeast Arkansas Landlords Association in Jonesboro, and there is contact information for that organization on the nationalria.com website. So, ha, problem solved. I maybe couldn't get you a direct answer to the rest of your questions, but there's one to that one. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing. It's question and answer week here on Real Life Real Estate. You can call us with your questions at 877-772-9658, or you can go to our website at askvina.com. 
you can there hit the Ask Vina a Question button, fill in your question and where you are writing from, and we will uh, get those here in the studio as long as you do that before, you know, 10 minutes before the end of the show, because email is not instantaneous, as you probably know. And uh, while you're there, you might also want to click the box to sign up for the Real Life Real Estate Weekly e-letter that comes out every Tuesday or Wednesday, gives you a reminder that the show is coming up so that you don't forget to listen. It also gives you an article that is uh, related to real estate investing. Today, it was about accountability and how important it is to become a successful real estate investor and how to get it if you're working all by yourself. If you just fill out that response form, we will send you that each and every week along with other news and events happening in the real estate investing world. Question from Togger in Florence, Kentucky. He says, I find a lot of vacant houses in nice neighborhoods that are bank owned, but are just sitting around rotting for nothing. Many of the banks are the big corporations. Do you have any suggestions on how to get hold of these? What about some of the ones with smaller lenders or the ones with no information on them at all? And do you have a formula for buying banks, for instance, a percentage on the dollar? Yes, Togger, there are a lot of houses around that are either bank-owned or in the foreclosure process that are, as you say, sitting around rotting. I read an estimate the other day that, and I will say this is the this is the highest estimate I've seen, but that it's possible that nine out of ten distressed assets owned by banks, so in other words, houses with defaulted loans that are stuck someplace in the foreclosure or pre-foreclosure process, or properties that are already bank-owned, but that are not on the market, might represent as many as 90% of the distressed assets owned by banks. In other words, nine out of 10 of nine out of 10 of the properties that should be for sale that eventually will be for sale that are uh, in many cases, not even being lived in uh, may not be on the market, may be part of that shadow inventory that you hear everybody talking about. We can go back through all the reasons for the shadow inventory, but um you know, suffice it to say, it's a combination of uh, accounting things with the bank and the fact that if all of the banks released all of their inventory to the market simultaneously, there would be another real estate crash. If all of those bank-owned properties that were vacant and hadn't been lived in for several years were simultaneously put on the market for sale, house prices would go back down again. The big banks that, to which you refer... Uh, you asked about how to get a hold of them uh, with, with the with the big with the really big national banks. That is a very very difficult process. When you see the signs in the windows that say um, this property has been found to be vacant, contact Bank of America with any information. In that case, they may not even own the property yet. They have just uh, sent somebody by to take a look and see if it was vacant or not. They discovered it was vacant. Therefore, in order to protect their property, they went in and winterized it, changed the locks, boarded it up, whatever. In that case, the bank literally can't tell you anything about it because they don't own it. Even when they do own the property, they typically have an asset manager uh, that they hire locally or regionally, who then in turn hires a real estate agent who will ultimately be the one to put the property on the market. So if you try to contact some of these big banks 
um, directly, uh, the best answer you will get is here's the number of our asset manager or here's the number of the agent who will eventually list it and you will not be in direct negotiation with Bank of America corporate headquarters over a house in Florence, Kentucky. The smaller lenders, they know their properties. They know what they have. They know what stage of the process it's in. They very often know what kind of condition it's in. Uh, they may have a, they, they, they may or probably have a key. Small banks, absolutely contact them. Just pick up the phone and call and say, hey, uh, who's the who's the head of your REO division? I need to talk to them. And Give them the address of the property in question, ask them about it, and they will be able to tell you all about it. The formula, oh, and the, and the ones with no information at all, uh, you're going to have to go down to the courthouse and find out uh, who the owner is if there's nothing posted on the property. You may find that the owner is still, you know, Jack and Jill Jones, uh, in which case you can, explore, you can explore a little further and see if a foreclosure has been filed and if so, if it has been completed on the property. If it's been completed, the bank who did the foreclosure was probably the winning bidder. If it has not been completed, you need to contact Jack and Jill Jones. And I know they don't live there, so you'll have to do a skip trace and, and track them down or something. Uh, my formula for buying properties from banks is exactly the same as it is for buying any other property. It doesn't matter what what they lint on the property. It doesn't matter at what price they acquired at the sheriff's sale. It doesn't matter what price they're asking. It matters what is the property worth fixed up and what is it going to cost to fix it up. And the typical formula in our part of the world for an investor to go in with an offer and still make an adequate profit is about 70% of the after-repaired value, less repair costs in a uh, an area like Florence that would be more of a, a homeowner type area or after repaired value times 60% minus repair costs in an area that would be more a purely rental area. Doesn't matter what they're asking. Matters what you can pay and still make a profit that makes sense for you to expend all of that time, energy, and money on the property. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing. It's question and answer week here on Real Life Real Estate. You can give us a call at 877-772-9658 or go to askvina.com. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I am your host, Vina Jones-Cox, and today is question and answer week, answering any questions that you have about anything you're curious about, about real estate investing. You can give us a call nationwide toll-free at 877-772-9658, or you can go to askvina.com and send us a question through the question form there. Now, I have a question here in the inbox that falls into that category of somebody actually asked it when I had a guest here who was talking about the topic, but the email didn't come in until after the show was over and the guest was gone. And uh, the question is in regards to Dave Van Horn uh, from from uh, PPR, uh, par, par, uh, p- p- Partners in Property Relief, who talked about uh, um, Second mortgages, about investing in defaulted second mortgages. The question is from David in Clinton, Maryland, and uh, his question is, understanding that you are offering a great deal to the homeowner, if you foreclose, won't the first benefit and wipe out the second? And the, the, the question for those of you who didn't hear the show, you can always go back and listen to it on the podcast, is that Dave was saying that one of the options when you buy a defaulted second mortgage, if the homeowner 
will not make a deal with you to reperform to to maybe pay a lower payment and a lower interest rate and a lower balance over time that uh, foreclosure is an option and David's question is a very common one because if you think about how the foreclosure process generally works the first mortgager gets paid the first chunk of money that comes out of the foreclosure and then the second mortgager gets whatever is left which is usually not much, if anything. So David's question really has to do with uh, why Why in second position would you foreclose given that you're wiping yourself out? To answer this question, I have uh, brought into the studio Matthew Adams, who you all uh, heard a few weeks ago on our Best and Worst Deal of the Year Award. Um, Matt is uh, a person who invests in second defaulted second mortgages and who has uh, run across this exact situation more than once. And I'm going to let him explain this to you, David, because he has more experience in it than I do. Thank you for joining us in the studio, Matt. Why would a second mortgager foreclose when he's going to wipe himself out? Well, you're very welcome, Vina. And David, that's a very common question in the marketplace of uh, second mortgages. But it's it's a common misconception uh, in, in a number of respects. First, when, a, when you are foreclosing from the position of being a second lien holder, the first lien holder's position remains and is still there. And in many cases, when you're initiating foreclosure, as a second mortgage holder, you're not doing it with the intention of going through the entire foreclosure process and ultimately owning the property, even though you can do that. So that's number one. In many cases, you, you will stop the foreclosure process upon getting a successful resolution with the borrower. Whether, as Vina alluded to, that's a workout plan, it could be a short sale, or any number of other workouts that, that um, we could go into. Uh, the, the other thing is, in most cases, the reason that you're initiating the foreclosure to motivate borrower contact is that they want to keep the property. So they are still making payments, at least for some period of time, on their first mortgage. As a result of that, the first mortgage isn't in foreclosure, and you're ahead of them in the foreclosure process, even if the borrower stopped making payments on the first. As a result of that, you're going to beat them to foreclosure in most cases. And there is some variance on the exact procedures that are involved because state laws and state foreclosure processes timelines do vary. But if you ultimately take a take a whole property through the foreclosure process and you own it as a second mortgage holder, you effectively bought that property subject to the first lien. The first lien is still in place. It is still owed by the borrower, not you. And their position hasn't improved so much as it's just changed. You're now the property owner and and any if the property is still occupied by the borrower, they're living they're living in it at at uh, with no with no longer any rights to do so, and then thus you can evict them. Um, I, I can tell you from the experience that both I have had and the experience from people that I have learned from, like Dave Van Horn in this business, that the vast majority of second mortgages do not go that route. Even even amongst uh, servicers that own thousands of these loans, less than one in 10 goes all the way through the foreclosure process if uh, amongst uh, the, the total population of loans. And in many cases, workouts occur even post the foreclosure process while the borrower is still living in the property. So 
there 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 is no quick answer to your question david but the the basic answer is and and you would need to you would need to check with your state about this as well because it does vary state to state um you can basically foreclose subject to the first mortgage it's kind of like buying a property subject to the first mortgage only in a forced situation so um, this is why people get enormous amounts of training before going into the purchase of defaulted second mortgages. And uh, thank you, Matt, for being here, because I don't think I could have competently answered that particular question. <laughs> so thank you very much. Uh, we're going to go to the phones now. Talk to Jane on line one from Cincinnati. Jane, welcome to Real Life Real Estate. Hi. Hi, Jane. I have a question. Um, uh, my question is, um, when you are making offers on the HomePath website and your buyer, we, you know, fill out the paperwork and they are signing as trustee. Does that trip um, any, you know, like flags go up because there is a clause to say that you can't assign the contract. And I was just wondering if that is something that you need to be concerned about. Okay. So you're talking about, you're talking about basically making offers on Fannie Mae owned properties yeah. via their new fun website <laughs> that uh, <Yeah. laughs> where those all have to go that the process for making offers on Fannie Mae properties uh, changed about six months ago and it's taken a while uh, to work out uh, exactly what what is what do, what do they want <laughs> what do I have to upload so uh, lots of paperwork <laughs> has lots of paperwork um, so the, the question is is uh, putting in a buyer that would be for instance uh, Fred Smith trustee as opposed to just Fred Smith trigger any red flags or anything with Fannie Mae and the answer is no, it, it doesn't. All, all that tells them is that the property is going to be purchased into a trust. That, that, okay. That's all it tells them. Uh, the, I'll tell you what the, what the thing that initially confused me about both that offer-making process and also the one that I think people are going to see more commonly, which is the HUD website, is that it, it asks for a tax identification number of some sort and obviously, you don't want to give the trustee social security number because the trustee is, is not going to be the owner of the property. The owner of the property is going to be some underlying entity, right? It's going to be an LLC or possibly even an individual. And it's that, it's that person or entity to whom the transaction needs to be reported for tax purposes. So here's a, here's a hint for you and everybody else who's trying to make proper, uh, offers on these sites give the tax ID number of whatever the underlying entity is at the time at which you make the offer. So okay. in, in your case, your, your LLC is, 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 is the buyer, whether or not you decide to later transfer that interest, uh, give the tax ID number for that. Uh, I wasn't okay. sure, I wasn't sure that was going to work the first few times I did it because tax ID numbers start with a different set of numbers than social security numbers do. And I was like, well, is it going to see the individual name and then not take the tax ID number? And But it, it works fine. And that's the correct way to do it for tax purposes. <laughs> so that should uh, that should solve your problem. And, and I make offers on that website all day long and have never had anything, you know, quote, triggered where they they said, wait, what's going on here? They do. They do. The closing agent, if the offer is accepted, the closing agent ultimately does want to see a copy of the trust because they kind okay. of they kind of have to see that because otherwise they don't know if the trust if there is a trust if the trustee has the rights according to the trust to sign all the paperwork all of that sort of stuff. 
Okay, that answers that question. One more. Um, I read through the 13 pages of documents that you have to upload. <laughs> I just did not catch anything to say that you couldn't sell the property within 90 days if you were to close. Is Do you know if that clause is in there anywhere? Uh, I'll have to go back and, and look at that again because uh, that certainly was a major part of Fannie Mae's uh, addenda up until they switched over to the website. I assume that it's still there someplace, but okay. uh, I'll, I'll have to check on that because I don't know when they went to the new system, they may have stopped having you sign those at the stage of the offer as opposed to later. I would, I would assume for the moment until we find out differently that that is still their policy, whether or not it is, is part of the offer process. Okay, great. Thank you. Okay. Thank you very much for your call, Janie. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing. It's question and answer week. You can give us a call here at the studio at 877-772-9658, or you can send us an email by going to askvina.com. Welcome back. It's Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Vina Jones-Cox. It's question and answer week here on Real Life Real Estate um, update from Brent in Jonesboro, Arkansas. He says he is currently single, but planning on changing that in the very near future. I would suggest that before you change that, Brent, you make sure you find a gal who likes living in rehab zones. <laughs> it sounds like she might be doing that for a while. Uh, you can give us a call with your questions at 877-772-9658, or you can send us an email. You can go to askvina at gmail.com. Uh, any question that you have, whether it be about making offers or rentals or financing or your particular situation, love to hear them. And frankly, there is no show without them. So askvina.com and fill in the question response form or call 877-772-9658. Question from Vaughn in Maryland. I bought an investment property six months ago and just completed the rehab. What are some of the best ways to market my rental? Uh, that's a great question, Vaughn, because the most expensive thing in rental properties is not the maintenance. It's not the repairs. It's often not even the mortgage payment, it's the lengthy vacancies. And your job, once you have your property turned over and ready to go, is always to get it filled with a good tenant as soon as possible. And that's often a multi-step approach. Um, I'll tell you one of, one of the best ways, and it, it has really kind of taken over the market in terms of how do people advertise rentals uh, is Craigslist. Uh, that's where most renters these days go when they are looking for a rental. It used to be the newspaper, not anymore. Uh, so Craigslist ads are sort of a no-brainer since they are, in most places, free. Also, do not neglect to put a sign in front of your property because uh, people who are driving around the neighborhood looking for a place to live will see it. And if it is not too terribly prescribed in your area, we have also had a lot of luck with those little directional signs that say house for rent. And then you can write in the address and your phone number and, and put them on telephone poles pointing people in uh, to the subdivision where your property is. Our Our calls are probably... 50% 50-50 divided between um actually probably more like 60-40 
between the online advertising and the bandit sign approach. So good luck in getting that rented, Vaughn. Uh, we're going to go to the phones now and talk to Michael, who's calling on line one from Cincinnati. Michael, welcome to Real Life Real Estate. Hey, how are you? Very good, Michael. How are you? I started off the year all right. Good, good. Did you have a question? Yeah, my question, um, I'm, I'm, I'm working on a, on a lead right now, and I guess the, the dynamic is that it's a, it's a family that has kind of a lawyer representing them, and uh, our, the numbers where we're coming at is not really, you know, we're matching up. And I, my question is, uh, should I try to get directly to the seller, or should I continue the negotiation with uh, their lawyer. Well, tell me, tell me why there's an attorney involved. Is this an estate? Is this just something they chose to do? Uh, it appears something they chose to do. Uh, the, the, a little bit of background. It appears that they're trying to sell off their assets due to um, Medicare, Medicaid um, qualification, mm-hmm. and so they probably used an, an attorney to kind of get them, guide them through that process. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and so, with that, you know, the part of the asset base is the, the real estate holding. Mm-hmm. And so um, they want to sell that in order to um, then, you know, declare it as, you know, some some value that this person has. Yes, they were very wise to get an attorney involved in that process because the Medicare, Medicaid rules and um, the things that they can do in terms of uh, unwinding transactions, if, if, if Medicare sees that there is a a sale of a home, for instance, in the past two years that they believe was not an arm's length transaction, but was an attempt to shed the asset before going on Medicare. Uh, In other words, um, you and I are brother and sister, and I sell you my house at a fraction of the price to keep it in the family, and so I'm not showing any assets. Uh, Medicare can actually go back and unwind that transaction, is my understanding. So... Uh, they were wise to get this attorney involved. However, now you have a problem, which is that you are not talking to a motivated seller. You are talking to an attorney who is probably much less motivated to get that house sold than they are. Uh, I assume that what he is telling you is that, yes, he has conveyed your offer to the family and it is not acceptable. Well, no. So it's mainly verbal um, and, and basically saying you know, our numbers are not meeting up to where um you know, either one of us are expecting. Of course, I'm coming in low. They they want it a little bit higher than that. But you know, there's some repairs that's needed and and things of that nature. And you know, I, what I'm struggling with is is trying to say is, you know, whatever appraisal that they got is that something that's solid that Medicare Medicaid is holding them to, mm-hmm. or is it just you know whatever they sell a property at is what you know. Um, the government will look at. I'm going to take a stab in the dark here and say that uh, if there's a Medicare, Medicaid situation here, there's probably also a guardianship. The The person who owns the property is probably already in a nursing home or something of that nature. And there's been a legal guardianship filed, which is why the attorney is involved and why the uh, family is negotiating through an attorney. And that would also explain why there might be an appraisal on the property. Now, if the court made that appraisal, and generally with, with probate court, and that's, that's where guardianships are dealt with, there's some rules regarding what percentage of the appraisal can be accepted without going back to court and asking for a reduction. So, so, so let, me, let, me, let me tell you what I think has probably happened up until now. 
probably the okay. the court has appraised the property. The attorney and the family has seen that appraisal, of course. Whether or not they believe it to be correct, they are under an obligation because it is a guardianship. It is not really their property to sell it within a certain percentage of that appraisal. Because you have the attorney involved and there's, you know, let's face it, there might be a little attorney ego here and there might be a little bit of, um, uh, as I said, more motivation on the part of the sellers than of the attorney. The way I would go to the attorney is as a questioner, as a student. Uh, is there an appraisal? Uh, at what percentage of the appraisal can they sell that? Can, if, can you go back to court with my written offer in hand and ask the court to, to sell it at a lower price, at my price? Because I'm gathering you're not getting offers of the appraised amount or you would have sold it already. Um, uh, by the way, Mr. Attorney, um, do they get to keep any of this money? Or is Medicare just taking it all? And if Medicare is taking it all, why... Do they care what they get? What, what does it matter if it's $25,000 or $20,000? The, the net to them is still zero. Uh, so if, if you can approach it a little bit uh, more as, you know, I'm, I'm trying to make this work, but I, I don't understand the process. You're the lawyer. Explain to me how we need to, what, what, how we need to go forward in order to make this work. Okay. I, I think you might get further there. I, I doubt the, um, if the family wants to work through the attorney, I doubt that they're going to want to uh, talk to you directly. You can certainly ask the attorney if it's okay with him and them if you call them, but I think the answer is probably going to be no. I think you'll get a long way just by playing student. Okay. Okay. Thank you for your call, Michael. We're going to go quickly to line two, Jackie in Cincinnati. Jackie, we got about two minutes left. What's your question? Um, I didn't have a question. I actually had an answer for the guy who is on the phone just previously. Um, I work in a nursing home. I work with Medicare and Medicaid. Mm-hmm. And I know the rules with selling a house in Hamilton County um, is that you have to sell for 90% of the market value on the appraiser's website. Mm-hmm. And if you can't do that, then you um, can get two appraisals that actually show the value of the house to be lower. Mm-hmm. And Medicaid can accept that. This is awesome. Now, when you say the appraiser's website, do you mean the auditor's website? Yeah, okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. that's uh, boy, Michael. I hope you're still listening because that is very, very good news. Because um, Jackie, as you've probably noticed, working in the nursing home, uh-huh. uh, many, many times people's properties are overappraised because they right the the, the auditor the market has not reflected that exactly. And the auditor didn't <laughs> didn't go inside the house and see that. Yeah, right. it's been very well kept, but the kitchen is 50 years old and the furnace is 50 years right. old and. And right. so a real appraisal where someone walks into, someone who is a knowledgeable appraiser walks in and evaluates the true condition and value of the property is likely to get him down into that range that he needs to be in to, to buy a fixer upper house. Right. And the, the people who go on the Medicaid from the nursing home, they do have 13 months to sell their house. They're supposed to listen with a realtor or an attorney. I mean, there's rules required there. But the money does actually does not go to the family it actually goes towards the care of the patient and it pays for it extends their private pay time a little longer until there are medicaid kicks in or it becomes a lump sum to the medicaid for a state recovery jackie so, i would i would like you uh, w- w- uh we're, we're we're out of show time here but i would like you to stay on the line because i want to i want to get your uh number and uh okay. talk, talk to you after this because you have no idea how many questions like this we get on okay. real life real estate. So if you can just hold okay. for a moment, uh, we'll talk further about how to share your expertise further. Uh, that's great. That's like 
the, the, the best call to end the show with. Uh, and we are ending the show. It is, uh, we are, we are all out of time here. Appreciate all the callers who participated today in question and answer week. Don't forget to go to the Real Life Real Estate page on Facebook and check out the upcoming OREA, Cincinnati OREA seminar with Ron Legrand on February 9th. We'll be back next week with more information to put you on the path to financial independence through real estate investing. Until then, happy investing. Thank you.